This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. There still is a tremendous amount of just simple work of let's get the word out. 16% of the U.S. adult population, that's it, um, uh, last year had known about the drug shortages. That means that 84% were clueless. Drug shortages in healthcare occur for many reasons and have negative impacts. According to the Food and Drug Administration, a high percentage of drug shortages have been and continue to be sterile injectables, including chemotherapy, anesthesia, and other acute drugs. And even though drug shortages have declined in recent years, a significant number of shortages are still active and continue to negatively impact patient care. Our guests in this episode have focused their professional attention on this issue. Dr. Yoram Anguru, a pediatric hematologist, oncologist, clinical bioethicist, and chair of the Ethics Committee at Sinai Hospital in Baltimore. Dr. Anguru is also on faculty at the Berman Institute of Bioethics and leads a multidisciplinary transnational working group examining the ethical and policy implications of chemotherapy shortages in childhood cancer. And Dr. Andrew Schumann, an associate professor at the University of Michigan Medical School and a practicing head and neck cancer surgeon. Dr. Schumann is also a clinical ethicist who helps to run the clinical ethics service at the University of Michigan and has focused on issues related to access to medications that are either scarce due to cost or supply. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Dr. Nguru, can you outline for our listeners what kind of drug shortages we are experiencing? It may be easier, Kevin, to say what drug shortages are we not experiencing. I'm not being facetious because, again, your, your question is apt. I like to say that it doesn't matter what kind of a patient, meaning what kind of a medical problem you may have, and it doesn't matter what kind of a physician you may be, chances are you're going to be faced with the drug shortages. And so if you look at the top five drug classes that are typically in short supplies, it's antibiotics and antivirals, what we call antimicrobials. So all manner of uh, medications to treat infections, okay? Um, chemotherapy, uh, uh, cardiovascular critical care drugs, uh, uh, drugs uh, to treat all sorts of uh, uh, conditions associated with the endocrine system, hormonal agents, CNS drugs. We have shortages though, probably the one that, that drives this point home the most is we have shortages of basic IV solutions. So different combinations of water, uh, that are in the in the medical world. Uh, so uh, normal saline, that's salt water. Uh, uh, saline solutions with bicarbonate, that's a form of, of IV baking soda. Um, these are basic life-sustaining, life-saving solutions that every patient, when you roll into an emergency room or you're at your doctor's clinic and you need hydration that you would get. And so really... The drug shortages, the only good thing you can say about them is they don't discriminate. They don't care who you are. They don't care what you look like. And they really affect each and every one of us in some way. Dr. Schumann, how have drug shortages impacted your work? 
So I'm a cancer surgeon, uh, and uh, you don't need to know too much about surgery to know that it's helpful for people to be asleep when you operate on them. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a critical shortage of the most commonly used medication used during a general anesthesia to keep people asleep called propofol. And that shortage changed literally the way anesthesia is given overnight, and that lasted for almost a year. So we saw in the operating room literally every day that our anesthesiologists were forced to use different regimens and other creative means to maintain a safe and appropriate level of sedation and anesthesia for surgery. So this is not a problem that happens here or there. Many of these drug shortages are so ubiquitous that they impact every aspect of clinical care within the area in which they uh, are used. And I think the propofol story is one that everyone can relate to and was so incredibly uh, ubiquitous around the country uh, that uh, it was of immediate um, consequence for all involved. Dr. Schumann, can you frame for our listeners the ethical questions, the challenges, or maybe tough choices that you and your colleagues are facing? Perhaps there's no more gut-wrenching dilemma than deciding which child with cancer gets the life-saving drugs. Uh, many of the drugs that are on shortage in oncology are tried and true and generally cheap and generic. And the uh, unfortunate system in which we practice uh, has created a system in which tried and true generic medications uh, simply are not cost-effective enough to produce in a way that is sustainable and in a way that uh, ensures a supply that meets the demand around the country. So yes, cancer therapeutics are one of the areas in which uh, drug shortages have had truly life-threatening consequences. The ethics of distributive justice are not new. Uh, the concept and the need to think about the principle of justice in medical ethics is as old as the field itself. Uh, the challenge is how we address it. And the simple fact is when you have a pizza and you have eight slices and you have 20 hungry people, you have to figure out how to divide those. And of course, you can cut them in smaller slices. You can give them to the eight hungriest people, or you can give them to the four hungriest people and give them two slices each. And I'm clearly oversimplifying a very complex problem. But the bottom line here is there are a number of ethical rubrics and philosophies for how to decide how many slices of pizza to give to how many hungry people. Uh, there are approaches that range from default first come and first serve, all the way to much more complex distribution algorithms that take into account need, uh, fairness, equity, um, alternative regimens, and many other variables. Uh, but suffice to say, clinical ethicists and institutional ethicists are challenged with helping to make these very complicated decisions within an even more complicated system. Dr. Nguru, what are the strategies and problem-solving frameworks that you are finding helpful? I think the first point that is that's worth reiterating is whatever framework one relies upon, it has to be explicit, it has to be public, it's gotta be transparent, and it's gotta be nuanced. So explicit meaning, 
it's great for us to sit in our ivory towers and do philosophy and, and moral uh, uh, approaches to, to allocating, but that's not going to help clinicians and that's certainly not going to help uh, our patients. And so we need to have concrete guidance that speaks to in situation A, do B, C, and D, et cetera. In terms of public, that goes hand in hand with transparent. It's great to have a wonderful allocation framework, but if the community who it's meant to serve is not aware of it, and if they don't approve of it, well, then I'd argue that it probably is not as good as we think it may be. So we need to do the hard work of messaging hey, we are confronted with drug shortages. That's not our fault. And I say ours, I mean the clinicians. Um, uh, but we can't be paralyzed and we need to move forward. So this is the process that we are recommending. And part and parcel of that is in the development of that framework, it's key that members that are affected most by it be privy to the development of that framework. In other words, it's great for you and I, say, who aren't affected by a particular disease, say childhood cancer, to come up with a, a distribution, rationing, prioritization framework. We should really include the parents and the kids if they're able to in some of these decisions. And then the last part of that that I mentioned was the nuance. What I mean by that is we have to have a framework that is defensible, that we can say is the reason we are suggesting that we prioritize the scarce methotrexate to kids with ALL over kids with osteosarcoma is because we have some evidence to suggest that the, that the methotrexate is more beneficial from a survival out standpoint for the kids with ALL than it is the osteosarcoma. We may not like to hear that, but we have to be able, hopefully, to rely on data. And so those are the types of frameworks. So for example, the framework that colleagues and I developed, that's the type of uh, thinking, the type of process where we want to maximize potential benefits of these highly effective and life-saving drugs. And at the same time, we want to make sure that our process for prioritizing is fair, that it's equitable, and that it translates across patients and patient groups. And that's that's what we've come up with. And so, for example, we have this, this two-tiered approach that kind of works according to that framework. Dr. Schumann, has the COVID-19 pandemic shifted your perspective on drug shortages? So I think everyone has experienced this pandemic in different ways. Uh, and I certainly uh, have given up on being able to predict what is going to happen next, uh, whether it uh, relates to the status of the curve or the next drug that's available, or vaccine allocation, uh, and so on. Uh, so if nothing else, this pandemic has humbled us. Uh, from my own personal standpoint, uh, I'm balancing uh, really many of the same things that we all are. So uh, kids who haven't been in school for a year, uh, all the way to my work as a practicing cancer surgeon. Uh, and certainly at early in the surge in the spring, making gut-wrenching decisions about how and when to operate. Uh, recognizing that uh, OR beds, uh, inpatient stays, medications, masks, and everything else were precious resources that needed to be uh, uh, controlled and thought about in ways we never really anticipated. Uh, my work as a clinical ethicist, of course, has involved everything from thinking about 
uh, how to allocate beds and ventilators earlier in the pandemic. Thank goodness we never got to that critical level, but we sure came quite close to dealing with, as you noted, many of the medications that have come and gone in this pandemic. So dealing first uh, with hydrochlorothiazide, moving on to remdesivir, moving on to uh, the uh, monoclonal antibody infusions, and now of course the vaccine. So uh, each of those has played out in slightly different ways, uh, both related to timing and supply, as well as related to regulatory uh, issues and um, institutional mechanisms. And I'm happy to talk a bit more about those. Uh, but I would say that the single greatest feature of this pandemic has been uh, the need to uh, redirect and recalibrate on a nearly daily basis. Dr. Nguru, what have been the stories and events that have taught you the most? I, I will never forget this. Um, I, I was caring for a little girl with newly diagnosed leukemia. And there was a clinical trial um, that I felt that was would be to to her benefit, um, and I sat down with her and I sat down with her her parents and went through the the whole. Here's why I think this is the way to treat it, and very very caring as one would expect, knowledgeable, thoughtful parents. And after back and forth over a couple of days, they said, you know what, we're not interested. We just like to stick with the so-called standard of care, the, the best known therapy. And said, absolutely, that's totally cool. And the next day, when we were about to start therapy, the mother came truly running up to me in clinic and said, we've changed our mind. We'd like to enroll in the trial. And, and I was a little surprised. I said, oh, you guys had really good reasons why you didn't think this was right for your daughter and for your family. And I'm curious, can you tell me why? And they said, well, we heard about this methotrexate shortage, and we know how much uh, uh, credence uh, you guys uh, in the oncology world uh, put uh, in uh, clinical trials. And so we, we thought that by enrolling her in the study, in the trial, she'll get priority for getting the methotrexate. And so I explained to them that wouldn't be the case. And, and in the end, she didn't do it. Uh, they didn't do that. But it really encapsulated for me how damning these shortages are. Here you have parents who are so thoughtful and who, are, who knew that this trial was not right for them, but they were willing to do anything, even go on an experimental protocol that they didn't believe in as uh, was right for their daughter in the hope that they would get the drug. And that to me was, that really was when I first got motivated and we formed this uh, working group on, on drug shortages and then the allocation task force. Dr. Schumann, what have been some of the most inspiring things that you have seen in this area of allocation or shortages? So it's easy for us to blame systems and companies, uh, but I would focus on the individuals. So one particularly poignant example of the heroism of individuals relates to a case involving a critical shortage of a cancer drug that is used for many different types of cancer, uh, including in pediatrics and in adults. And I'm not, I don't need to go into all of the de details of that drug other than to say this is a drug that's used for many, many different types of people with many, many different types of conditions. Uh, it was on critical shortage to the point where we were literally turning people away, uh, both as an institution as well as around the country, 
because we simply didn't have enough of this. We created a rubric to allocate it as fairly and as equitably as we could, taking in mind issues of data, science, logistics, and ethics. And in this particular case, there was a baby who had a cancer and would have benefited from this drug, but perhaps not as much as other individuals who also needed it. And the heroism of one individual pharmacist in this particular case involved the ability to essentially take all of the leftover drops in the vials that had already been used and cobble them together in a way that created sufficient dose that otherwise would have been discarded to use for this particular child. And I tell this story for two reasons. Number one, to recognize again, how important it is to have the stakeholders and the boots on the ground who are attuned to these problems and come up with solutions that I can't necessarily think of as an ethicist because I'm not the one who's actually squeezing every uh, milliliter out of those vials, but also to let folks know that those pharmacists are the really critical component of making sure that access is fair and just and equitable. And in this particular situation, that child was able to get that drug through the ingenuity and heroism that, of that individual pharmacist. Now, one of the other interesting wrinkles here, of course, is that that child didn't necessarily qualify according to our rubric. So one of the things that we had to do was think hard about whether or not it's fair to use that in that particular setting. Uh, because perhaps someone who was larger and didn't need as big of a dose, who had the exact same condition, wouldn't have met criteria according to our allocation, purely based on our critical shortage. But our decision in this case was that if we're dealing with a substance that is literally going to be thrown out, as long as we are fair and equitable and transparent about how we're making that decision, that indeed it is appropriate to use it in that way. So I credit that individual pharmacist for having the alacrity to respond in uh, such a wonderful way and making sure that that child was able to get something that otherwise would not be available. Dr. Nguru, what would you say are the kinds of claims, misinformation, or even inadequate mental models surrounding allocation that are undermining our ability to respond? I like how you how you presented that question because it's 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 very uh, insightful. Um, I, I think people forget, as you alluded to, Kevin, that rationing happens every day in the U.S. healthcare system. Insurance companies ration all the time when they approve or disapprove of a treatment or a procedure or a diagnostic, and that's a form of what we call implicit rationing. Um, you know, explicit rationing is things like allocation of organs, hemodialysis, uh, uh, et cetera, and so. I think the, the launching off point is, is exactly what you observed, that rationing happens. It just may be veiled under some guidance, guise of, of something that we're willing to accept or we have, we've come to accept. Uh, the other, uh, I think, uh, uh, mental image, if you will, is that there is an ideal framework out there. There's not. We, if we're being honest with ourselves, and hopefully honest with our patients, we have to recognize that no matter how good an individual framework is, somebody is going to get the short stick. That's the, the, the difficult part of this. And that's not what we are accustomed to doing, nor is it what we want to do. 
when it comes to some of these drug shortages, um, what what bothers me the most is these are preventable. We, we don't have to be in a situation like this. These are not natural resources that the sun has expired and bye-bye uh, planet. No, um, you don't see shortages of blockbuster drugs that generate tremendous profit for pharmaceutical companies. If you take a look, not even closely because it's right in there in our faces, but if you look and see what are the drugs that are in short supply, they're drugs that are decades old and which the profit margin on them is very, very small for the companies. And so as a result, there's an over-consolidated marketplace with very few companies wanting to make them because they're not getting money back. And and who's responsible for that? It's not just, I'm not trying to to, to suggest that the drug companies are, are evil and, and that they're uh, all they care about is their bottom line because the way that the government has decided to reimbursement also has a play into it. And so both, both sides uh, have some some responsibility here. And so I think that's why we need to come up with better mechanisms for, as again, I'll use that analogy of, of leveling the playing field. You know, if we if we look at these these drugs that are part of critical infrastructure, much like a utility, like water, like electricity, well, there's processes in place that allow for those types of things uh, to to be kind of looked at in terms of let's make sure that we're always having water, we're always having electricity, let's make sure that we're always having drugs. Well, then what do we do to do that? Well, we have different rates and we have different uh, negotiations in place. And so that's one way I think that that we can uh, we can do that. Let's create essential medicines. You know, the, the, the follow-up to the, the stuff that I just talked about that we talked about allocation was we realized that we came up with this, this kind of devil's choice. Uh, one of the reasons that we published this and we did all this work was really to show the public, look what a horrible situation families and kids with cancers and clinicians find themselves in. And we wanted to scare people almost. And the shortages persisted. And so we said, oh, that stinks. And so the World Health Organization has an essential medicines list. So we created an essential medicines list for childhood cancer. Um, and let's let's negotiate with companies who are willing to make sure that we have these and maybe they get some kind of carrot. They get a benefit. So we'll guarantee that all of these childhood cancer centers will get our drugs from you. And so there's ways that we need to think outside the box. Dr. Schumann? So I think one of the uh, misconceptions that many individuals have is that a first-come, first-served system will intuitively be the fairest and make the most sense. The fact being that if we can't come up with a better way to allocate, why don't we just do it based on who is first in line? Now, the challenge to that is generally the first people are in line are uh, educated, rich, white people with fast cars. And that is not the fairest way to allocate. So the bottom line is that if and when we are in a situation of shortage, we need to recognize that those who are vulnerable will not necessarily be able to be the first in line in many situations. So I do think that is one misconception of the general public that we do need to deal with. Many of the other challenges or questions with regard to allocation, I would actually argue are completely justified. So, for example, that allocation is biased or racially biased specifically, 
And I would argue that to some degree it is, and not intentionally, but due to a sordid history of institutionalized racism in our country, it is a true fact to say that the black and brown communities are going to have less access than white communities. So I would not necessarily call that a misconception, but rather a reality that is hard to face, but incredibly important to face. On the other hand, I do see the challenge in weighting an allocation system based on race, because it is also true that not every black and brown person or community is or should be treated equally or the same based purely on ethnicity or race. Those things are very different. So in order to come up with a system that can address institutionalized racism, but doesn't necessarily treat race or ethnicity as the only variable is particularly tricky and both politically contentious as well as ethically difficult. What are you hearing from your colleagues about what we need to be looking at or thinking about in the future when it comes to drug shortages? Well, what concerns me is that I don't hear enough. What I mean by that is um, even in my own hospital, and I'm I'm front and center. I mean, I, we, we have a drug shortage committee at our hospital that I chair, uh, and not every hospital has that. And that's just by virtue of what I do. And and um, and I'm re- repeat back in the pre-COVID days when we used to go together and sit down at this thing called a lunchroom, you know, and you'd have lunch with somebody, a colleague. Um, <laughs> I, I remember sitting with a, a radiology colleague of mine, really smart guy, Ivy League trained, you know, fellowships at the best places. And I was bemoaning some drug shortage. And he kind of looked at me and said, what are you talking about, Yoram? Drug shortage. And because in his world of radiology, even though there are radiology shortages of nuclear medicine materials and stuff, but his particular area, he was, he was you know, as he said, ignorant. Um, and so what bothers me is that there still is a tremendous amount of just simple work of let's get the word out. 16% of the U.S. adult population, that's it, um, uh, last year had known about the drug shortages. That means that 84% were clueless. And, and so uh, that to me is, is, is one of the, the, the first problems is that not enough people are aware of this. Uh, I think that the pandemic, there's zero positivity about the pandemic. But if there is a proverbial silver lining in it, I think it's brought to the fore the importance of having allocation models um, of prevention, all the things that we've talked about, because childhood cancer affects me as a clinician and my patients, obviously, on their skin. But there's not a lot of people who that affects in general. It's, it's a small, thankfully, it's a small population of the, of the community. Um, but COVID, as we're seeing, doesn't care who you are. Um, and so that to me is, is an opportunity. But I think the, one of the things that people are talking about kind of next phase is that there are these, these companies out there that you may have heard of uh, called like Civica. Um, uh, Civica RX, which is a nonprofit um, corporation drug company that has decided we're going to make, you know, s- generic drugs and we're going to make sure everybody has them. Um, I mean, I, I think that's that, that outside of the box thinking is the way to go. 
Um, I think that there's a lot of issues still. It's not clear to me from what Civica says, what kind of drugs are going to make and, and you have to kind of buy into their model, but at least it's, it's challenging the traditional approach. And so having a combination of more, more messaging, if you will, um, having the uh, uh, groups like Civica that are out there and then focusing on these types of things where let's view these things like a utility. Let's let's reward and maybe not reward based on uh, uh, production. That to me is, is kind of the next thing I'm thinking about. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections as always. Appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy and this is Ethics Lab. Hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Yeah.